Whom, who is here with him tonight? Uh, Maddox. Colin, come and speak to us. Hopefully, there we go. Hopefully, it's close enough to me here. Uh, I bring you greetings from the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ in Allen, Texas, a suburb just north of Dallas. Uh, And my main connection to this church occurred probably about 25 years ago uh, when I got to know a man named Mark Absher. I was quite young at the time, Uh, but Mark was the associate uh, minister where my dad was preaching as well. And so Mark and Ellen were a great blessing to our family uh, Jessica and Jordan uh, as well, and so it's good to uh, be in connection to go to dinner with Mark and Ellen tonight and uh, to get to know Doug as well, and I'm grateful for the chance to be with you all this evening. Let's pray as we uh, open our time in the Word tonight. God, we come from all over the city, a city that you love, a city that you care deeply for, a city that you want restored. So tonight, God, may we hear through uh, my feeble words, may they somehow through that gap between my words and and what you want to share tonight, would you speak through your Holy Spirit and guide uh, each of our hearts just to hear the one thing we need to walk away with tonight, God. I pray toward that end, you'd pour through me the gift of teaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and we might leave these doors to love this city more deeply than we came in loving it. I pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, during the summer, you've taken a look at some great cities, haven't you? In fact, not too long ago, uh, my wife and I got the chance to travel to some of these cities, to Ephesus. And I was able to go to Jerusalem and Corinth years ago. And I I wish I knew uh, then what I know now after going through a study of Scripture in deeper ways. But these are real cities. Cities that God loves. Cities where the church uh, that He loved was planted. And as I said earlier, uh, I, I come from the city of Allen, a city that I'm growing to love more and more. I've been there for about a year serving the church there. And if you know Allen at all, you probably would know it for one of two reasons. One uh, would be uh, the high school football team that's won the last three state championships. We're proud of that at the 6A level. The other thing, though, might be for something else related to football, which is the stadium. $60 million stadium. And it worked for one year, and then it broke down the second year. There were cracks in the foundation. You probably heard this. It was a national story. And uh, they wouldn't even let them play uh, last year in the football season. $60 million doesn't get what it, what it used to, right? Uh, but this year, the hope is we're going to be back in that stadium. Uh, so there's some good about Allen. There's some uh, interesting things about Allen that maybe we're a little embarrassed of. But Allen's a, a northern suburb of Dallas, and... Uh, I love Dallas. I love the city of Dallas. I grew up in, in Dallas in my high school years. In fact, uh, uh, just recently, our, our kids were on a trip. Uh, we were doing a Sabbath day trip to Dallas. We went up in the ball there downtown. And uh, they look, everything's bigger in Texas, you can tell by the picture. Uh, this is my uh, six-year-old son who's starting kindergarten. He's here with me. And then uh, Addison's on the left there. And then our, our one-year-old, Brooklyn, uh, in the front, who's the biggest one of them uh, all in love in Dallas. But we're learning to love this city. Now, I love the city of San Antonio. And my wife and I spent our first uh, wedding anniversary in San Antonio celebrating. And so this has been a city that I've loved uh, as well. And I grew up in cities, big cities, cities brimming with vitality, with creativity, with so many people and so much traffic. 
There's something about that I loved. Abilene, where I went to school, was, it was a small city compared to what I was used to. 100,000. Some of you grew up in much smaller cities than that. And we were ready to leave, and we got to go to Denver, and we loved Denver for a season. But before I talk about uh, the city that I'm sharing tonight, I, I want you to get a glimpse of the future that God wants to call us to. And it comes with this final city tonight. It's the eternal city. It's the new Jerusalem. Is, is what I want to share with you about tonight. I hope you'll leave tonight looking forward to the city God promises He's going to bring in the end when He restores it all. Are you looking forward to it? And I want to share, I want to give a vision of what that might look like, of what it might look like to love our city now and to pray His kingdom to earth as Jesus taught us to. May Your kingdom come, may Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But cities don't begin in Scripture in a very flattering way, do they? The, the, the book of Genesis really has a real negative look, I think, at cities. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to the beginning of Genesis. I'll skip past the first three chapters that most of us have heard a lot of sermons on into Genesis chapter 4. But Genesis, uh, one, one statement I've forgotten here that I want to get to is this one. In the beginning, we've got to realize, was a garden, not a city. This whole thing starts in a, a garden, a place with, where the tree uh, is there. And, and of course, this tree with way too long of a name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, what's that all about, right? But God gives them this chance to decide and, and, and opt for the best way of life that He promises them. But He leaves this option open and they take it. This story begins in a garden, not in a city. But as the story goes on, we begin to see cities emerge through some interesting routes. So Genesis isn't just a story about creation, it's a story about humanity's move towards civilization. We see this move through the first uh, several chapters of Genesis. I want to walk you through this tonight, just to give a a sense of where this whole city thing comes from. In Genesis 4, the move toward city becomes more pronounced. You know, maybe some brothers, Cain and Abel, that show up in that story in Genesis 4. And I want to read from Genesis 4, verse 2, as we pick up. In this idea for moving from the garden to the city that we see in the first few chapters of Scripture. In Genesis 4, verse 2. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Now, first, Adam and Eve are uh, hunter-gatherers in the Garden of Eden. Right? They, they gather the fruit, they eat what God has given to them. As the story goes on in Genesis 4, 2, we begin to see some more development. Abel, the younger, less advanced brother, is actually a nomadic herder. He's got animals that he's taken care of. The sacrifice later on comes from that, uh, that that he's given. But Cain, the older brother, the more advanced brother, is a settled farmer. So the story in Genesis 4, yes, it's a story about sin, about the first murder in Scripture, but it's also a story about humanity's move from the garden to... Uh, ranching, basically, in a, in, in a nomadic way, to finally finding this kind of settled place on a farm. A very different life between those who are herding some kind of animal to those who are in a, in a place and trying to work that soil and, and, and work that soil to find fruit that come from it. Which means the first murder isn't just a story about two brothers who can't get along. Genesis 4 is also a commentary about civilization coming of age. The nomadic herder Abel finds conflict with the settled farmer Cain. And so the farmer invites the herder onto his land and, and kills him in cold blood. And th- there's this theme that continues to show up through the first 11 chapters that John Steinbeck picks up, actually, in a novel that he writes. 
Uh, but Genesis 4.16 is the first sense we get of this move that I, I'll show you happens again and again. It says there that so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And ever since then, the people of God have been on this move east of Eden. Away from God's best, away from His intention. And yet God has a plan that we're going to talk about more tonight. But east of Eden is this theme that continues to show up. Civilization making this move. So Adam and Eve, they, they exit the garden to the east and, and Cain uh, leaves the Lord's presence to move to Nod, east of Eden. And guess what Cain does next? I think it's fascinating as we've studied this, uh, as you all have studied this this summer. Verse 17, Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So now, representing this kind of uh, doubly expelled from the garden and the farm, the murderer Cain then begins to build the city. And so Cain begins as a settled farmer, but he moves to becoming a city builder. And this is the first mention in all of Scripture where city comes up at all. You see this move from garden again happening just through the first four chapters. So in Genesis 6, God brings the flood and starts over again. It's kind of a creation 2.0, right? Uh, a little messier than the first one. But in Genesis 11, we find that this same move east of Eden, the same move toward civilization and building happens all over again. The story of the Tower of Babel. Now, the story of the Tower of Babel is about a lot of things. But one of the things I don't remember hearing growing up is really the story of the Tower of Babel following the civilization theme is a story about technology. Because instead of stones being stacked, which if you've, if you've ever tried to stack stones, it's difficult to do to build something, Right. But now they're making bricks, and bricks are able to be stacked. And as we find out later in the story of Israel, as they go into Egypt, we see that bricks and quotas and slave masters begin to emerge, because now bricks can be laid upon bricks, houses can be built, buildings can be built, and then cities can begin to be built. And so in Genesis 11:2, this is what we read in the story of the Tower of Babel. As people moved eastward, again we see that theme of east of Eden, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. So they continue this move east of Eden. And they decide to build a tower. Why do they build this tower? Well, scripture tells us. To make a name for themselves is the reason for it. A very selfish aim the city seems to have. And those buildings that make up the city, God scatters and confuses their language. And this place was called Babel. There might be many reasons for that. The first, one of the first lessons of the series was on Babylon. There's a similarity there in language, Babel and Babylon. But perhaps it's just the confusion of languages. It sounded like Babel as all these languages were coming together. And what seems like progress, if you think about it, right? Civilization, from a garden to having herds to having a, a settled farm to now building a city with bricks and technology. That's, this seems like a great move, right? Progress. And yet what we find is as they move east of Eden away from God, they're focused on themselves and they forget their God in the midst of it. But in Genesis 12, the story makes a turn. Abraham, Abram at that time, called by God. I I find it fascinating, the language of Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, uh, as we begin to pick up the story about Abram and Sarai who were called out of their city, out of their land, uh, to go where God's called them. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Isn't it interesting? Genesis 11 
story of the Tower of Babel. They're trying to make a name for themselves. But already in Genesis 12, God calls Abram out. And what is he saying? He's giving him a name. He's giving him a story. He's, he's allowing him to become a new nation. But not a nation that's designed to make a name for themselves. A nation that's to bless all peoples of the earth. I think so many of us struggle with this, don't we? If, whether it's our jobs or our families or whatever we find our identity in. Sometimes we're, we're about making a name for ourselves rather than making God famous most. And, uh, and, and this is the move of Genesis 12. is a move away from selfishness, a move away from just building civilization so we can be known, but it's a move so that all peoples on earth would be blessed. And this is a key point I'm going to come back to a little bit later on in, in the message. But Genesis has a hostile view of cities, from Sodom and Gomorrah to Babel to uh, Egypt later on in Exodus. And we read on in the story in Jericho and Canaan. These cities become enemy cities. These cities become places where evil gets out of control. And so Israel, as the story goes on, ends up in Egypt, don't they? For over 400 years. Silence from God, it seems. Many of them probably forgotten the story of God. Wonder if he's still doing anything at all. And so Pharaoh uh, begins to use them, just as any civilization would do, begins to uh, enforce hard labor on, on, on the slaves in Egypt. And God eventually frees them. And, and I think it's important to see that you know, he doesn't want them to be slaves in the same way they've been in, uh, oppressed by Pharaoh. As they go in to start the promised land, to lead in the promised land, the hope is they'll lead differently than Pharaoh did. So these Ten Commandments, in a sense, are a way of humanizing the people of Israel. That Sabbath command is one of the most important commands. These, these are people that have been treated harshly. They've been treated like animals. And, and what he's trying to remind them is it's okay to take a day off. I'll take care of things even on your day off. It's okay to take a break because God created the world in a rhythm of six and one. And that's the same rhythm that you should live as well. Don't murder. Uh, don't steal from one another. He's trying to rehumanize these people and to help them see that through these good Ten Commandments that he gives. But as we move on in Scripture, we see a move from a very negative view of cities to a much more positive view as the story goes along. In fact, I want to open to the book of Psalms, Psalm 107 tonight, a very positive view of what cities are uh, when it comes to this description. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. So when David comes in, cities are seen in a different light, and this is Psalm 107. It says there, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Let uh, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to, to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in, the, in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Isn't it interesting, this, this move from seeing cities in this very negative light to all of a sudden in Psalm 107, those who are in wastelands, the ones who are not taking care of it, is God who is leading people to the security of a city. And for a season, the people of God enjoy the benefits of the city. David's on the throne and others are on the throne, but eventually that all changes, doesn't it, as they begin to go after other gods. And eventually they lose their land, eventually they end up in exile. And God warned them this would happen, and sure enough it happened. God uses, of all people, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, these very violent people. Not righteous at all, but he uses these people in some way to quell the, the violence and what Israel had done. In fact, these people who were slaves end up using slaves to build the temple of God later on in the story. It's a heartbreaking turn when you think about what God's trying to send them to do. 
And once again, Israel is a city, in a city that's not their own, under foreign rulership, in search of a city. So I guess the question tonight is, have you ever been in a land that wasn't your own? Think back to certain times in your life. Maybe you've grown up all your life here in San Antonio, I'm not sure, but many of you maybe are finding this to be a place that it just doesn't feel like home. Or maybe you've lived in other places away for a time, and, and you know what it is to have that feeling of homesickness. Maybe it was when you went off to, to school for the first time, or, or perhaps it was on a, out, you were out of the country just on a vacation or a mission trip that you took, and just that feeling of the food's different, and uh, you know, I, I just can't, this isn't like I'm used to feeling homesick. Holly and I, we, we lived in Colorado for six years when we left school. We, we ministered. It was a great place. It felt like a six-year vacation in a lot of ways. Great place. God's country. But I'll tell you, Texas is God's country too. It's the place we know. It's the place we love. It's where home is. And I remember feeling that sense of homesickness. This isn't home. That We're exiles in a foreign land. A great land, I'll tell you, but, but a foreign land still. We were never truly at home in Colorado. And I believe that the people of God experience a bit of homesickness wherever we are. Even if this has been home for you all your life, isn't there this sense of unease that this world just, it's not our home. It's not what we're destined for. It's not where we, we came from from the start. This world, we're exiles. We're foreigners. We're, we're a bit odd. We never quite fit in in the ways we'd like to. And I believe this is because we were meant for a place so much grander and better. We're citizens of heaven, church. Scripture talks about this over and over again. Paul tries to remind those in Philippi, you're, you're citizens of heaven. And you're placed in cities for their own good, just like the exiles were told. You know, plan and have children and marry. Do all, do all that. Don't wait to go back to Jerusalem, but do the best you can to see. But ultimately, we're destined for another city. Amen? Uh, the book of Hebrews describes this feeling. Uh, and I want to go there right now if you open the, to Hebrews with me. All the words on the screen too. Hebrews uh, chapter 11, I think, describes this so well. This passage on the hall of faith and all these people who by faith did all these great things. Hebrews 11 verse 8, we come back to that story of Abraham that we read a moment ago. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations. Pay close attention here. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builders got. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Some of you tonight who feel that unease, who feel as if this isn't quite home in one way or another, if you've ever felt that, I believe that ache inside you is an ache for a city that's on its way. There is a future city whose architect and builder is God. 
And he has promised that for his people in the days to come. But Abraham, he still followed God by faith in the midst of that homesickness. And why? Because he was looking forward to a city, Scripture tells us, whose architect and builder was God. They were foreigners. They were strangers. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And God has prepared the same city for us. Cities are wonderful places. I've told you before, I I love cities. I, I love cities. And I believe God loves cities. And you know why I think God loves cities? Think about it this way. God tells us that He created humans in His image, correct? Genesis 1 talks about this. And if that's true, what that means is that cities, quite literally, have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place in the world. I mean, as, as tight and as, as little yard as you might have like we have, right? There's something about that, that we're, we're gathered together in, in something that is the image of God. It, everyone you encounter, when you look into their eyes, you're looking into the image of God that's placed inside that human being. And the city is a place where you learn more about God than any other place on earth because you're around so many who have His creativity, who have His image inside them. There's some interesting stats I found this week about the world and how it's changed in terms of cities. 50% of the world's population lives in a metropolitan area or city today. 50%, that's worldwide, live in, in a metropolitan city. Now, less than 200 years ago, Less than 5% of the world's population lived in an urban or suburban context. That's 200 years you go from 5% to now 50%. We're living in a time where cities, the move to the cities, where God is somehow moving His work and somehow moving His people too. In the United States, 75% of the population lives in an urban or suburban context. And we can lament that in some ways. I know many of us grew up on, uh, on grandparents' farms and may have grown up on farms ourselves. And there's something to be missed in the midst of that. But there's something to be gained as well. And that's a huge change. And I believe God cares about the city of San Antonio so desperately. He loves the city. And cities provide three things uh, that I want to talk about tonight. Cities provide three things uh, that I think is part of the reason people are drawn to this and why Scripture points out the, the positive side of cities. First, cities provide safety and stability. Because the people of God were living in the wilderness, there was this sense of just kind of wandering and, and exile and not feeling like they had any protection. And even walls didn't protect Jericho, right? So we know God can even break through that. But, but there's a sense of security that comes with people who gather together. There's a, a sense of ownership and, and, and there's a tribal nature that comes between us that we look out for one another. When we're at our best, we protect and we stabilize and we bring safety to one another. And that was especially true around Jerusalem and Jericho, these walled cities. But it's true in our day as well. Number two, cities provide diversity. And I think this is a great thing about this church as I was hearing at dinner tonight is just the diversity that's, that's here that is not found in all that many churches. I want to just encourage you in that. This is, this is what Genesis, uh, Galatians 3 is talking about, right? In Christ Jesus, there's no longer male nor female, slave nor free, uh, Greek nor Jew. We're, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so the water of baptism is thicker than any blood that we have. That's what, what ties us together and what is our primary identity is the waters of baptism. 
And so somehow we learn to live. And that was Paul's task all throughout. Is how do we bring Jews and Gentiles together? How do we bring slaves and masters together? Nowhere else in the Roman Empire was that happening in the same way it was as in churches. And it was a testimony of the eternal city that was on its way. Of the vision of 20, Revelation 21 and 22 where people of all tribes and all nations. And that's what we're called to practice here. We're called to put on display something that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. To live in the midst of the diversity. And it is a, it's a blessing that cities bring. Uh, the third thing that cities provide is productivity and creativity. Productivity and creativity. There's something about the image of God and people in, when they're in close quarters that, that creates all kinds of new things. So much emergence of culture and technology and progress happens around people and great minds that are in together and rub against each other. Uh, and, and those ideas come together to produce so much. Now, the biblical view of cities is not extreme. It's neither hostile uh, nor romantic. Again, there are good parts of cities, there are bad parts of cities. Because city is humanity intensified, isn't it? It's like putting a magnifying glass on a, on, to bring out the very best and the very worst. Uh, and, and if you read the paper or watch the news, you're going to see the worst. But if you look with a different eye, you begin to see the good as well, don't you? And God doesn't give up on cities. In fact, the key cities in the Roman Empire, these are cities that he loved that he planted some of his best churches in in those days. Have you ever looked uh, at the table of contents uh, in the New Testament, just those names, or maybe the ones you memorized in that song growing up? You got names like Matthew and Mark and Luke and Timothy and Titus and Philemon, names of people. But have you noticed what so many of the titles of those books are? It's Ephesians, Romans, and Thessalonians and Galatians and Colossians. I find this fascinating. I don't think it's an accident these are named uh, by that. Because God's mission strategy in the early church was not to go into anywhere but the most difficult to reach cities and to call a church there. Those churches weren't called Cornerstone or Elevation. or No, they were called the church that met at Ephesus. Christians at Ephesus. And I love that, that these cities that were full of all kinds of evil and all kinds of wrong that was going on in that days, we don't... We, we know books of the Bible by those cities' names. As if God was able to redeem even that in the first century. These were places that were full of corrupt pagan cities, gods, and, and all kinds of gods. But when we open our Bibles, these aren't evil cities, are they? We know them when we teach them to our kids as books of the Bible. There's something significant about the move of God that moves into cities and does this over and over again. It's actually a strategy that seems to work. In the early church, God's redemptive mission, mission no longer centered on a particular city like Jerusalem or Babylon. Those, those were cities where the church moved as well, at least Jerusalem we see. But all of the cities in the Roman Empire become these places. In, in the book of Acts, you just look chapter after chapter, and Paul's moving from city to city, trying to start with a group of Christians and see what might emerge. And just imagine being in Philippi, and, and Paul meets Lydia, and he, he, he baptizes the jailer, and you know, there's just these small group of people, and then Paul moves on, and there's this huge city, and you're wondering, are we ever going to make a dent? And yet, now we know these places as books of the Bible. Because God works through His people, even the smallest of people who are faithful to Him, in the most amazing ways. In Acts 17, Paul travels to Athens, the intellectual center of the world at that time. And he's, he's willing to go up against the philosophers. He's willing to point out this unknown God. He's willing to move into that city and love it. And even call it spiritual where others probably couldn't see it. In Acts 18, he, he goes to Corinth, one of the commercial centers of the Roman Empire. And he doesn't go there just to 
become a tent maker. He comes there because he wants to plant disciples in the city. Disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And then in Acts 19, the next chapter, he, he arrives in Ephesus. Perhaps the world's religious center, right? Uh, all kinds of temples and other gods that are worshipped there. The hub of many pagan cults. But he's not afraid just because there's all these cults and gods that are worshipped. No, no, no. He, he knows that if, if, if this salt and light of the kingdom of God could find its way in, it can... Well, it's like yeast that works its way in the dough, right? You've heard these stories. It's like a mustard seed that just kind of begins to sprout and it becomes something so much more. See, the whole missionary strategy of the early church in Acts is to reclaim cities for the kingdom of God. Paul gives his life to planting these small little communities. And when he dies, I'm sure there's a sense of, I don't know if this is going to work. It's going to take a move of God for this to work. But somehow he trusted, just like Jesus did, right? I mean, Jesus trusted these twelve, even above the crowds. He poured into them, hoping these seeds would sprout into something bigger. And Paul does the same thing. He picks out about twelve cities or, or so, maybe a few more, and he... He plants the seed and he hopes it'll be watered and hopes it'll grow, but he knows only God can bring this growth. And these communities exist to show the world not the best way that a city can be, but what the eternal city will one day look like. Church, this is what we're called to do, is we're called to practice resurrection now. This is the enticing way we call people into the church, into the kingdom of God, is we, we put on display to the world what God's future is going to look like. And I'll tell you, that's much more attractive than many of the ways that they're finding it. It's actually good news. I believe the way of Jesus is the best way of life possible. That's not why I got baptized. I got baptized because I was scared of hell. (laughs) But I'll tell you, what has sustained me is not fear. What has sustained me is learning this way of life in the Sermon on the Mount. Is learning about the mustard seed, learning about the yeast, learning about these parables of Jesus that seem like the most insane way to do life, and actually trying it out and finding this is better than any way I could devise on my own. Anyone that want to say amen to that? It is the best way of life possible. So the Bible points to this city thing, beginning in the prophets. It's the future hope of Israel. This eternal city is where I want to move to now, the future of what God hopes to bring, the new Jerusalem. This is the future hope of Israel from the prophets. God foretells of a time in the future when His people will return to Jerusalem or to Zion. We're marching to Zion is a song we all know, right? That's... Right out of this idea of God's future. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, God begins to foretell of a time in the future when His people will begin to come into this lovely city. They'll sing these songs of ascent as they rise up to the city surrounded by walls with stability. And tell me these passages I'm about to read from the prophets. Tell me these don't give you hope when we look to the future. Uh, Isaiah 65 is one of those places I want to turn to. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. Bear with me. This is a little bit of a long reading, but I want you to pay close attention to these words. This is, this is the future we're all looking forward to, and the, and the future we're trying to put on display even now as the Holy Spirit guides us to. See, maybe you need to envision this. That's kind of the prompt here. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. It's okay to say amen to some of this stuff. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. 
The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and they're going to dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them, because they call, but before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is our hope. Isaiah's hope is that one day God would, he would recreate all of this with some kind of new heaven, some kind of new earth. There will be no more miscarriages. There will be no more SIDS. There will be no more wolf lying down, uh, wolf terrorizing lambs. It will be beautiful. Uh, a few books later, I want to turn to the book of Micah. Micah, chapter 4. Another picture of this new heaven, new earth, this eternal city. Michael chapter, uh, Micah, chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say... Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Can you imagine that world? A world where we no longer send our sons and daughters off to war. A world where God is resolving these conflicts, where they find somehow this peace and the diversity of that city becomes great again in Zion. Finally, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8. I know these minor prophets are a little hard to find, so the words will be on the screen as well. Zechariah 8, beginning in verse 3. Just two more verses I want to read to you, and then I'll close with a few other words. Again, one more picture of this future. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there, is what verse 5 says. Children will no longer be hiding or made to be child soldiers or sex slaves. Instead, they're playing in a park where it's safe. And that's future. It's God's future. It's what He wants to bring. And as much as we can make that a reality today, by seeing to it that these kinds of things don't go on on our watch, we are trying to put into display the future that God will bring. And who doesn't want to be a part of all this? And that's how the story ends in the last two chapters of Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22. is the last place I want to spend time in tonight before we close. Oh, this is such a good picture of what the future is, church. Somewhere I missed this picture in the last two chapters. Probably remember this Maranatha part, you know, amen being the last word, because somehow I memorized that in a Bible bowl somewhere, but... 
I don't remember this picture. I remember a different picture that may have been Saturday morning cartoons or anything else. I grew up imagining heaven as some kind of otherworldly experience with chocolate fountains and harps and clouds, right? You remember this? Maybe this was your conception. Maybe you were taught better. But the hope given us in the prophets is a hope about a city. It's a hope about a new Jerusalem. It's Revelation 21 and 22. So I want to read from Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Listen to these words and see if it squares with your imagination of the future, because this is the promise God makes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No wonder we're homesick. Because this is the way the world was intended to be. This is the way it was in the garden, and this is the way it will one day be again. It's what Jesus was praying for, as I said earlier, in the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that interesting, the way Jesus prays? Because I thought this was all about somehow escaping the earth. I thought this was all about maybe one day I get to go up to the clouds, but that's not the picture that Revelation 21 gives, is it? It's a picture of a city. It's a city with streets. It's a city that somehow comes out of heaven. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven, it's God bringing His will to completion in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know what all that means, but I know I want to be there. For the first 20 years of my life, I don't think I ever heard about this future hope. It was always about escape, always trying to leave this world, you know, because I've got a soul, and I've got to tell you, that soul is a basketball dunking soul. And my body keeps me from doing that, and I can't wait to get to heaven to do it, right? (laughs) But as I began to look at this city that comes out of and emerges out of heaven, this new Jerusalem that somehow God is bringing to earth, it seems, in this picture. All of a sudden, it's a new reality. In other words, the eternal city isn't a place we hope to escape to. It's a city God intends to send to us. That's what Revelation 21 seems to be showing. And I never caught it before, before I begin to look without kind of the Saturday morning cartoon look. It's, it's as if God wants to bring this city, a real flesh and blood city, and make it everything He intended to be from the start. It's a city free from death and decay. It's a city without cancer. It's a city where the Yankees will never again win the World Series. Can I get an amen? amen. See, church is, this is the city God is planning to bring. It's the reason that you feel homesick, it's the reason you have an ache in your soul for something more is because this is not the end, this city. It's a city we're called to love. It's a city we're called to share good news with, but ultimately, this is not the city we were designed and created for. For all those who call Jesus Lord, your citizenship reads something other than San Antonio. It reads heaven. So may you love the city of San Antonio. Love it well. Build your houses here. Plant your vineyards here. Marry and have kids, just as God told those in exile to do. But may you also give your neighbors and friends and co-workers, may you give them a glimpse of this new city on its way. 
but you live in such an attractive and winsome way that they can't help but wonder, what is your citizenship? Because you're not American. (laughs) You're not San Antonian. You're something more than that. There is a city on its way, and it is the New Jerusalem. And church, that is good news. In fact, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a prayer this evening. Father, I want to teach my kids and my grandkids about this city. I want to teach them about how good that you made this world in the very beginning and how we somehow messed it up along the way. And how we continue to do that, even in our best attempts, on our best days, it just, this world is not our home. But you called us to this home right now. You called us to the city of San Antonio. You called this church to be salt and light, to be yeast. You called it to plant mustard seeds in good soil and bad. Just to spread that seed wherever we go. So God, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in San Antonio as it is in heaven. I pray that more and more this community of believers would live in such an attractive and winsome way, God, that their neighbors and friends wonder, what in the world is it with these people? It's like they don't belong here. And I want to know where they belong because I want to go there too. God, I thank you for churches like this that are living uh, in a diverse way together, that are learning to love one another and love their city. God, help us to love our cities. You love them more than even we do. But God, help us to realize that as much as we try to make this city like heaven, it is not heaven. And that your eternal city, the new Jerusalem, is what we long for. We, we want our tears to be wiped by your hand. We want there to be no more crying or weeping. We want war to be a thing of the past. So God, would you bring your kingdom here? And would you help us to live as your citizens of heaven, ambassadors in this land that you love? I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.